So uh, tonight I was going to do a talk on um, leadership in our community. And uh, I was hoping that we would have quite a few of our senior students here, but I see that we don't really have that many senior students here. And I'm a little bit concerned that the people who are here as beginners may not be so interested in that yet because there's a, um, a way in which you're probably just checking this all out and um, really wanting to uh, just even understand what this meditation, what this meditative um, culture is about and whether it's for you and uh, what it can do for you and what might be of help or support to you. So I'm going to talk, I think, about aspiration and this aspiration for leadership that um, is really part of the practice of Dharma. This is Joshua, by the way, who's one of our teachers here. And this is Sankara, who is a future teacher, probably. Um, at least a future wonderful student, as his parents are both wonderful students. So our practice of, of mindfulness, <coughs> bless you, our practice of mindfulness, yeah, is um, seemingly when we first come to it. Yeah, quite simple. And perhaps even it may appear to be um, a practice that in the beginning woo, doesn't, um, doesn't yield a whole lot of satisfaction because we give, a, we give some instructions and those instructions essentially um, are instructions that are really meant to be cumulative over a long period of time. And yet, you know, we're in a culture where we want to, and I've heard the Dalai Lama, you know, say he's been asked the question, you know, and I've actually heard people ask him the question, what's the fastest, quickest, most efficient, cheapest, um, least hassled way of becoming enlightened, right? And uh, usually his answer is, I don't know, <laughs> right? Because there is no shortcut. What I do know is that it's a practice that over time changes us significantly, changes us really in a way that, in ways that are surprising, that are, that we have no way of anticipating. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no way of knowing. You are a real ham. Uh, no way of knowing what's gonna happen. But you know, that's not any different than the way life has always been, right? Life has always been full of surprises. And yet, for some reason, we think we're gonna get up in the morning and things are going to be exactly like they were the night before or the day before. So mindfulness is a way of reminding us of this amazing 
quality of life that we have that is that it's constantly fully changing. Yeah! It's constantly surprising. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> right? It's constantly surprising. We never ever know what's going to happen next. It's true. And yet our habit is to really believe that life is going to produce exactly what it's always produced before. How boring would that be? Right? That things never changed and that all of the habits that we've accumulated over time, mostly in response to some very um, primitive and uh, basic needs for safety and for survival, that those are always going to be the habits, those are always going to be who we are. And yet to be human means that we are so much more than that. So mindfulness begins to remind us of that. That, there, that even though over the, over the course of our lifetime, we have developed habits, some of which are, ooh, some of which are not um, so advantageous for us that those habits can be shifted and changed and that there can be um, significant transformation that happens over time. How does that happen? It happens because as we learn how to be present in this very moment, as we learn how to be, to know exactly how things are in this moment, and we begin to train ourselves to know how they are without wishing they were other than they are, without judging ourselves for the way they are, and without um, anticipating how they might be in the next moment, we begin to understand what reality really is. And even for those of you who start, just started meditating tonight, there were quite a few of you who came up and said you had not practiced before, you may have noticed that something happens in the heart. That as the mind and the, and the heart and the body begin to become uh, calm, begin to be willing to see things just as they are without judgment, without the need for them to shift, without the need for them to change, that indeed things do change. So what we also begin to notice is that the, one of the components of mindfulness is, uh, is kindness. That heretofore, before we were willing to actually stop and be here without prejudice and without, uh, without desire and without aversion and without ignoring what is here, that the heart begins to soften. That there's a quality of mind and heart and body that arrives quite naturally without us having to make anything happen. And that that kindness is very much a part of who we actually naturally are. 
that kindness is not a quality that has to be produced or um, constructed, but that it's actually a quality of heart that is there really waiting in its very, in its natural state, waiting for us to discover. So this willingness to, to be with things just as they are, in the beginning may feel like a constructed state. It may feel like uh, to be here without ju- the constant judging that the mind does. Is this okay? Should it be different? Should I be okay? Should, am I okay? Are they okay? What, what's going on? What, well, maybe it should shift. I don't like this. I, I don't like this. This sensation in my body. I don't like this. This is unpleasant. I think it should go away. I, I like that. Oh, maybe it should stay a little bit longer. Oh my God, it disappeared. What did I do that was wrong? Oh my God, maybe I should do something else. Who's that? Who did that? So, you know, we begin to see how the mind is like just constantly dropping in and dictating to us how things should be. Right? Anybody else notice that or is that just me? Thank you. So, we notice that, but we notice that when we're willing to let that come and let that go, that the mind begins to rest. It begins to maybe in some measure, I don't know, maybe in some measure it begins to feel a little bit safer. safer, Because it's not so much dictated to by what may have happened in the past or what may happen in the future, but it's actually just sitting here with the way things are. And it, it's, it's not really, it's not magic, and it's not um, woo-woo. You know, the scientists are really sort of telling us now that they're all physical, um, they're physical bases for all of this to happen, that the brain actually cooperates when we're present, that when there is kindness and compassion in the heart and mind, when that's actually highly developed as a muscle that the mind lights up in ways that it needs to light up and that our our way of um, meeting life becomes one that's more peaceful and one that's happier. So this practice of mindfulness um, although it may appear to be in the beginning a little bit confusing because it seems a little too simple. The mind wants things to be a little bit more complicated and wants to make things more sophisticated. That actually, as we begin to stop and allow the mind and the body and the heart to settle, that the complexity of life shows itself, but it shows itself in quite a different way. It shows itself in a way that we're able to take in, that we're able to process, and that we're able to be with and meet in ways of kindness, compassion, wisdom, clarity, um, in ways that uh, we're able to meet and and, uh, work with whatever is arising and whatever is presenting, whether internally or externally.
So we come to um, a place of forgiveness. We come to a place of compassion. We come to a place of gratitude and generosity and a heart that is wide open. And I'm not sure that I can completely tell you how that happens. Right? It's not as if I can kind of uh, map it out for you. I'm sure that there are scientists who can probably map it out for you, but I, I can't really do that because I haven't studied it in that physical way. What I've actually, the way I've studied it is in this mind and body with observation, is looking over a long period of time to what actually happens to this mind, heart, and body as it becomes accustomed to being here rather than there or there. It's here. It's here. So mindfulness and kindness are deeply, deeply, deeply connected. And I've spoken quite a bit, and many of you know, about the connection between power and love. And in a way, power and love are the same as mindfulness and metta. That this, this ability for the mind to stop and be here is a powerful thing. And when there's, there is power in the mind, heart, and body, it must be tempered by love. That as in, in the words of Martin Luther King, if power, if there is uh, an imbalance between power and love, power becomes abusive and reckless. And if it's, if it's an imbalance between love and power, then love becomes anemic. But that the combination of the two which is mindfulness and metta, really, produce a balanced life, one that is able to get done that which needs to be done. And it's not just that we get done what needs to be done, but we begin to be able to discern with more clarity and wisdom that which needs to be done. Because if we're busy judging what's happening, and thinking it's not right and it shouldn't be happening, it's very difficult to respond. But if we take what is happening now as what is happening in some, in, with some wisdom, understanding that things that happen, happen not independently, things are not happening randomly, but that actually life is, in, life is unfolding through a, a totally, utterly, completely lawful process. That what happens here happens because of all of the causes and conditions that have been set down over the millennia. And what we also understand is that we are not separate from that process. So we can't look at ourselves as being somehow outside of life and somehow not responsible or totally responsible for whatever is happening. We begin to understand that there is a, an interconnectedness, a connectedness of consciousness that is inexorable and implacable.
and that it, it is impossible for things to happen ind independently, that everything happens dependently, that we're all connected. And what's happening in our culture is a complete forgetting of that fact. I go into the supermarket today and I'm trying to move my cart through an aisle and somebody is standing there and I, I stand and I wait and I wait and I wait and I wait and I realize that it's not even that she's decided she's not going to move. It's that she just completely is oblivious to the whole flow of the place around her. And I, I saw it as a, as a kind of template for the way our political discourse is, for the way our relationships are across, across races and cultures and religions and all of the ways that we slice and dice each other and all of the ways that we think we're different from each other. And we're not present. We're not present for each other. We're not looking out for each other, thinking that we're all separate and that we all have to go get it ourselves. Completely forgetting somehow that human beings are communal, that we need each other, that we have to be here for each other, that, without, that we can't survive without each other. And all of that starts to dawn on us very clearly just by this simple act of stopping and looking and seeing. And we do that not just as a, as a kind of formal, meditative um, retreat from the world. Not as a kind of, oh, well, I'm over here and I gotta, I gotta get my act together, I gotta get my life together, I gotta do this and that and, and make it all sort of start happening for me. It's, it's not that. It's a way of really penetrating the reality, the soup we're in. Penetrating this life in this body, in the context of all of these lives and all of these bodies. Do you think you stop here, where this bag of skin ends? If when you close your eyes and you really pay attention to the sounds and the sensations and the images in the mind and the emotions in the heart, do you really feel alone? Do you really feel isolated? Do you really feel as if there is nobody else in this world who can understand what is happening? Or do you begin to really feel your deepest humanity? When we look at this baby, 
do we really understand the innocence from which we all come? Where we all started? We all started there. And then all of these forces, right, played their part on us. All of these forces. And then we try to do the best we can, given whatever our circumstances are, whatever our karma is. And I don't mean karma in the sense that, oh, you did something bad and so now bad things are happening to you. But that over time we make decisions and we, we take decisions and make actions according to those decisions. And, then, and we do the best we can. And then as a result, act, consequences happen. And then we deal with those consequences and then something else happens as a consequence of those actions dealing with those previous consequences. And so we all get all tied up together in all of these ways that the, the web works together. So I'm always happy when we meet as a group of people of color. Because I think for us this is a really poignant, this interconnectedness that, you know, I've, I've, I'm sure many of you are, I've quoted that quote from Martin Luther King until you're all totally bored with me. Uh, you know, where he talks about how when we get up in the morning, we reach for a sponge from a Pacific Islander, we get coffee from, um, from a, a West African, from a South American, or cocoa from a West African, or tea from a Chinese man or woman, that we take a soap that was made by a French person and a towel handed to us from a Turk. And before we've had breakfast, we're indebted to half the world. And that this is the interconnected nature of reality, a network of mutuality, he calls it, in which we all sit. And so it behooves us not only to, to understand our place in the world, not only as a responsibility to ourselves, but as a responsibility to that whole network. So that those of us who are working as activists for justice, that we're careful that the way in which we do that doesn't add more injustice to the world, that it adds love to the world, because that's really what we're um, going for. Sayadaw Upandita, who's one of my teachers from Burma, is a senior meditation master, wrote that without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised, raised arms is something to think about. How are we in the world? What do we contribute to it? So how do we, we may find it somewhat impossible sometimes not to match the harshness of the world with our own harshness, to not meet the energy of the world that is sometimes so difficult and so powerful with our own difficulty.
and to not default to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is such an ancient Hammurabi uh, law. To not think if I hurt, then you must hurt too. It said that when uh, Gandhi was, was, there was an attempt on Gandhi's life, um, quite a few attempts on his life actually, before he was actually assassinated. And there's a story that one time when the person, of course, failed to carry out his assassination, Gandhi expressed pity for what would happen to him with his kinspeople who had sent him to assassinate him. Now it's hard to believe that we could actually feel that kind of love for someone who wishes to hurt us. You know, when we look at people like Mandela and King and Gandhi and um, Mother Teresa and people who've had really quite difficult lives. We remember them because they could overcome all of the difficulty, all of the assassination attempts, all of the ways, you know, for Mandela, his 18 years of imprisonment. For King, all of his incarcerations. how they can actually, they could actually still embody and teach love, kindness, and really teach it as totally necessary for the um, survival of the world. That's what keeps us going. So our aspiration is intention and then effort and then faith. That we aspire to not who we want to be, something else, but actually to be the best that of who we are. You don't want to be somebody else, you know, be like Mandela or Gandhi or King. We use them as inspiration, but it's really about being who we are in the best possible way. And that means with all of our flaws and all of our difficulties and all of our limitations. There's listening the other day to the radio and they were talking about this man whose name I forget who has created a community for people with disabilities and when he was interviewed he said that the reason that we are so uncomfortable with people around around people with with disabilities is because we're all trying so hard to hide our own flaws and so when we meet somebody whose flaws are not hideable who's, you know, right out there with their flaws, that it makes us uncomfortable. But in some ways, it should make us really 
pause and reflect on our own flaws and our own ability to live with who we are very clearly. And not necessarily need to visit our flaws on the world, but at the same time not pretend that they're not there. And how do we use them? How do we see them as the very ground and the very material with which we work? That if we can understand the pain of our own lives, bye. If we can understand the pain of our own lives, then that's where compassion arises. But if we're busy denying it and push it, pushing it away and avoiding it and trying to suppress it, then seeing the pain of another is going to make us angry. And from that anger comes cruelty. Or the worst possible thing is pity, right? That we somehow place ourselves above the other person who's suffering and think, oh, you poor thing, right? Sorry about that. I'm over here not suffering. But if we see ourselves as equal and understand the human predicament in its largest sense, then we can meet the world with compassion. And that requires presence. And that's what we're training when we train in mindfulness. I'm in the process of dealing with a very serious illness of my husband. And it's very, um, it's very humbling, right? I'm a meditation teacher, hey, right? Piece of cake, no, wrong, not. It's actually very difficult. It's very difficult because when we're dealing with life and death and illness and aging and all of those things, we somehow think that it shouldn't touch us, right? Or that if it touches us, it's a mistake, right? Something's gone terribly wrong. Or maybe there's something we did. Maybe we should have eaten better or exercised more or done a better diet or done something better or different. But it's, it's, not, it's not how it is. How it is is that we're in this human soup and so we have to deal with, with as people of color, we know, we know about suffering, we know about injustice, we know about societal structures that are oppressive. And we also know about the real human uh, indignities, in a way, of aging, illness, and death but that they're real and that they are, um, that they require strength. And how do we get that strength? We get that strength from presence. 
but we can't wait until that's happening before we start to train our minds and our hearts. We train our minds and hearts now with the little, you know, difficult sensation in the body that's uncomfortable, that we don't want, that we want, you know, we want to shift it, we want to make it go away. And we learn how to work with that rather than trying to get rid of it. And so that, so that when the accumulation of life starts to really impinge, the mind is already trained. The heart is already trained. It, we're not waiting until those emergency situations and then trying to, to train the heart. It just doesn't, it doesn't work out. So this mindfulness practice is a mindfulness practice that invites us in to slowly unfold to slowly see what we're capable of, which is something really beautiful. We're capable of being completely and fully human in our skins, whatever our circumstances are, whatever culture we were born into, whatever language we speak, Whatever our situation is, we learn how to work with that in the best possible way. We learn to make the mind and the heart really strong. And it doesn't mean that then everything's easy. What it means is that when things get really difficult, and we break down and we think I can't go one more moment like this that we find all of the resources within to carry on and we can carry on without resentment without rancor, without aversion, without question. That's what the practice offers. And then we learn to be the very best that we can be. Which is different for every single human being, yet the same. We learn how to work with things just as they are. And then by our presence, we learn how to appropriately respond in this moment and forgive ourselves when we slip. So I think that's all I'm going to say tonight. I'm going to thank you for your attention.